churches. Uh, last week, there's a small card uh, that we passed out or in the bulletin, and it showed all the three-strand churches that we're in covenant fellowship and relationship with. And so Andrew Pack, who is the pastor of the church in downtown Seattle, or if it's downtown, but deep in Seattle, um, texted me that he was going with his, I believe, youngest son, uh, Thaddeus, to Children's Hospital. They didn't know what was wrong. And he hasn't been eating for a while, um, and uh, it's been a chore to get him to eat. And I can't remember how old he is, but he's young, possibly under three. Um, and another text came through that he has leukemia, which um, you can imagine is uh, terribly difficult to hear and to learn. Um, but we want to pray for him and his family, and I ask you to remember to pray for him. Uh, when you get texts like that, which by God's grace isn't often, but I get them, um, you are sober to the reality of what is most important in this life. And to the temporal nature of this life. And so uh, let us remember um, that we are ambassadors and sojourners and aliens here, strangers, and that this is not our home, and uh, pray for God's restoration. So I'm going to pray. Please remember Andrew Pack and his bride and um, young Thaddeus. So uh, let's pray. Father, we come before you thanking you for your mercy and your grace. We do not deserve to come before you in and of ourselves. There is nothing worthy, but you have made us worthy by your Son. And by the sacrifice of your Son for the sins of men and fix the brokenness of this world, Lord, we have been made holy. We have been made blameless. And you invite us to come before you as children come before their father believing that you are a father who loves us, you're a father who always gives us his best, you're a father who's never surprised, you're a father who is perfect. And so we thank you that we can come before you as a father and ask for you to help us, and that when we ask for help, we can remember that you are a king who can do what is ever necessary to complete your purposes and to bring about good. So Lord, we lift to you Andrew Pack and his family, especially young Thaddeus, Lord, um, they find themselves face to face with, with great brokenness and great sorrow. And Father, we grieve with them, but we also hope with them as a people who grieve differently. And we pray, Father, that at this time you will just bring them comfort and peace in a way that only you can. That spirit, you will fill them with great faith, not in what they see with their eyes, but what they know with their hearts and what your word declares, that you will help them in the midst of desolations that have come upon their family to be still and to know that you are God, to remember that you are good and you are gracious and you are generous and great. Father, we give little Thaddeus to you, and Father, we do pray for his healing. We pray that that you will expunge whatever disease and brokenness is found in his body. We ask that you will give him comfort and whatever understanding, Father, you can bless him with in a time that must seem very confusing and strange to him. Just love him, Lord, and I pray you'll love him through your people, that their church, the anchor church, will be strengthened through this, and the love they have for their pastor and for one another will grow and that this trial, Lord, will be seen as a monument to what you can do in your power, in your glory, in your grace. Remind us all, Father, of our need for you. Remind us all, Father, of the brokenness of this world and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ to restore all things. And we pray that he will return quickly. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We are in Genesis chapter 2, so if you open up there, we're going to get right to work. Um, just by way of uh, introduction, I want us to remember that Genesis 1 and 2 describe creation before sin entered into the world. And we have this basic truth, a foundational truth, that as people look at the world in terms of even uh, disease and, and hurricanes and all these frustrations and irritations and devastations that we 
agree with them to say things are not as they're supposed to be. There was a time when things were good, that a good God created a good world. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 teach us. Genesis 3 records how all that God had made good became bad and broke as a result of man's disobedience. And the rest of the Bible from Genesis 4 all the way through Revelation is really the revelation and story of how our gracious God restores His creation to goodness again through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so Genesis 1 and 2 are incredibly important chapters for us to spend time on because they're really the only chapters that we read that that are kind of devoid of, of sin's effects, if you will, and they are very foundational chapters that give us very what we're calling bedrock definitions and, and concepts and principles about manhood and about womanhood and about marriage and about the existence of God and about life and about what we're going to talk about today, work. So we're going to read Genesis 2, 2, and then for the up to verse 15, and that's where we'll spend our time. It says, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon, which is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is God's Word, and that's where we'll stop. Remembering that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 talk about some of the same things. Genesis 1 is a complete picture of the first six days. Genesis 2 kind of gives us a little bit of a focused insight into what details or what happened on that sixth day. And as I said, we're, we're talking about work. And work should be something that's familiar, obviously, to us all, every one of us, whether you are a student or a young person doing chores in your house or a mom or someone who's working outside of the home. We spend uh, much of our lives working. If you divide us in the third, we spend a third of our lives sleeping, if we're lucky and don't have lots of kids. We spend a third of our life playing, and we spend a third of our life working. And the work we do, as I said, takes all shapes and sizes depending upon who we are and, and where we are. Some do work outside the home, but others work in and on the home. And I want to make sure that we talk about work and not just jobs. That will be important as we go forward. But the third of our lives are devoted to doing doing something a lot, whether that be building widgets, offering services. If you're a student, you are working to educate your mind, or many of us are shepherding our children full-time, working harder than most jobs. And it's difficult for us, especially in our culture today, and perhaps it's not been different in other cultures, but in our culture, in our generation, in capitalistic America, it's difficult not to become defined by what you do. In many ways, I think our lives are centered on our vocations, and we begin this at a very young age. 
I know if you're a parent, you probably have done this. I've done this. Before our kids get into really any kind of formal education, whether that be at home or in the schools, we're playfully asking, what do you want to be when you grow up? We ask it a lot. And slowly it changes from Superman to policeman to fireman, whatever. But we ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? Which is probably better asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? And then when you finally are, are in education or in schools, parents and teachers and counselors are constantly asking you the same question. What are you going to do when you get out of school? What do you want to go to college for? To learn how to do something. And when you're finally old enough and wise enough to answer either of those questions, I think very few of us probably find ourselves in jobs that truly satisfy our passions. And most of us just make do with our lot as we dream about retiring from work altogether. Right? That's the, that's the way of, of America. And I remember in, in school taking tests about what you wanted to be. And I remember it came out, seriously, like funeral embalmer was like number one. What does that even say about me? I don't know. I didn't even know that was a job, right? But I was thinking fighter pilot. Or, or something like that. That's where I'm going. Always thinking about it. In college, I think I changed my major five times because I didn't know what I wanted to do. It's a very, for me, it was a fearful thing because I viewed life as kind of this amusement park and you got one ride. And whatever ride you get on, you go. And that's it. And if you don't pick the right ride, right ride then you know, you're stuck. So I was scared to pick. The Bible teaches us this is not how we're supposed to look at work. Beginning in Genesis 2, we see that work and rest from that work were gifts from God. And very few of us, unless we're trying to impress, will describe our work as a gift. We wouldn't say, this is a gift from God. Thank you, Lord. Let's be honest, most of us are complaining about it. Most of us are bemoaning it. Even pastors. There you go. There's my confession, right? I would love for you to believe that I am the perfect Christian pastor who never bemoans being a pastor. You would be 100% wrong if you believed that. I, too, am included in this, not apart from this. Of course, few of us will ever admit that unless you're up here and you know that I've had to spend all week going through this and I have to be honest about my own idolatry of work. But few of us will have that opportunity and admit that we look at work that way. But I think it's true for a lot of us, whether we are working in the world or working in the home. Our sense of success, our sense of failure, our sense of joy and despair, our daily strength or weakness or hope or joy or feels, our, our overall sense of satisfaction and significance are wrapped up in what we do and how well we do it and whether or not other people see me and approve of me doing it. In essence, I think what's happened is that we have created a God out of a gift. And we have used work or we have, I should say, worship, work as a God. And rest, I think, has been our first and most regular sacrifice at that altar. We have wrongly made work about our satisfaction and our significance. And the Bible tells us just the opposite. The Bible reveals, beginning in Genesis 2 here, that God is a worker. And he is a worker who rests and therefore being made in his image, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, he gave us the gift of work to glorify him and the gift of rest to enjoy him. If we don't approach those rightly, hopefully we can understand that today. First and foremost, we believe, as the Bible teaches, in a God who works. 
In the beginning, we see in Genesis 2, but obviously through Genesis 1, God reveals himself as the first worker, the only creator. We see in those first two verses, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done, blessed the seventh day, made it holy because he rested from his work. God is a worker. He worked for six days straight. It's noteworthy that no other religion describes their God as a worker or believe in a God who works. And we know, because of Psalm 19 and other verses, that all of God's work had a purpose. It was intended to reflect and declare His greatness and His glory and His magnificence and His awesomeness. And even though the primary purpose of God's handiwork it was to make much of His name, think about this. The result of that, the result of that effort, I'm going to make much about myself, I'm going to make much about my name, the result is a gloriously wonderful and good word world for us to enjoy. That his work for himself, his work for his glory, results in blessing to us. Our joy and God's glory are not in competition. They go together. And Jesus, who had been accused many times of working when he should have been resting, said in response to one of those accusations, my father is working until now, and I am working. My father is working. See, God not just worked in the Old Testament in the beginning. He is even now actively, constantly, personally building, shaping, cultivating, and working in the world. God is a worker. But here's the problem for us. Today, we are so captivated by our own work. So enamored by it, so distracted by it. We are so captivated by our work and our achievements and our purposes that we fail, I believe, to recognize and to thank God, not only for His initial work, but for His continuing work. We are focused wrongly on ourselves all the time, on our own work, Generating either pride because we think we're rad or despair because we think we're not. John Piper has famously said that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. 10,000 things at any one time. Working all the time. And yet, that's not where our minds most naturally go thanking Him for what He's doing, even the difficulties of work. Trusting Him, even when work seems impossible. But despite and even through our sin, God continues to work for His glory and for our sanctification, which is shorthand for saying, making us look like Jesus, that began with our redemption. And we can't forget that no religion has a God who takes on human flesh and comes to this world. And he didn't come to sit in a palace. He came born in a manger with work animals. And he lives as a carpenter, not a king, for 20 plus years before beginning his ministry. And then Jesus worked hard and labored hard for his short life. And it was a short life. And he worked so hard in ministry, so hard in, in serving people and preaching and ministering that he was exhausted enough to sleep on a boat in the middle of gale force, hurricane-like winds. No other religion's God works for their creation. Chooses to be rejected. Silently endures false accusation willingly submits to being murdered on a cross for His creation. And no other religion promises that our God continues to work all things together in order to complete the work that He began in us. 
our God is a worker. And we believe in a God who works actively and constantly. And when we work according to the way that he designed it, he will be glorified and we will have joy. But the Bible doesn't just describe God as a worker. It describes him as someone who rests, which is strange to think about God resting. And I think that's more strange because we probably misunderstand what is meant by rest. But it says he worked hard for six days. And on the seventh day, God rested from his work. Not that God took a nap, but God rested from his work. This is not to imply that God was tired or that he was weakened in some way after six days of creating the universe, which I imagine was pretty tough. This is the rest of achievement, not exhaustion. God stopped, ceased from working, not because he needed to, but I believe because he knew that we would need to. See, working to create and to build and to cultivate is an awesome thing. Made in his image, we are creators. And men build some amazing things. And with the new you know, do-it-yourself movement in this world, it looks like a lot of people can create lots of things out of a lot of junk. It's awesome. That's why I love the theme of Restoration Road Church. You can pretty much put garbage on the wall, and it's like, yeah, restoration, rad. But people make some awesome stuff now. We're builders. We build these things. You know, there's more technology in this than it was like on Apollo 1 or 11, whatever, in this. That's pretty scary for them if you think about it, right? Creating and building and cultivating is a good thing until it becomes an end in itself. Work is a good thing until it becomes an end in itself, whether it's outside the home or in the home. See, bad things are not the only problem. Christians are really good at avoiding bad things. They make their lists. Don't do this. Don't say this. Don't think this. And partly that's because of a misunderstanding of sin. There are certainly bad things to avoid. But bad things aren't the only problem. We have to actually be protected from a few good things, too. In fact, most bad things are just good things that we want too badly, I think Keller says. So to that end, God blesses the seventh day. And he makes it holy. And in essence, he says, look, it's awesome to work, and it's awesome not to work for a time. Essentially, from the beginning, God intended to share his rest with his creation. And he does that. Now the Hebrew word here for rest becomes the root word for the word Sabbath, which you've probably heard about. And Sabbath was a very important part of Jewish culture and Jewish tradition. The first mention of the actual word Sabbath comes in Exodus 16. So the Israelites have been out in the wilderness, wandering around. This is before they're, they're at the mountain. And God feeds them by dropping bread from heaven. And he says, look, on the seventh day, I don't want you to work. So the sixth day, you're to gather a double portion. And the seventh day, you're to just cease. So you get extra food. Don't pick up any food that day. And the Sabbath, actual rule, if you will, or official uh, codification of it, became part of the law in Exodus 20. It's the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. And it was modeled after Genesis chapter 2. It says in Exodus 20, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. God's like, work hard for six days. In America, we've made it five. That's interesting. Work hard for six days. Get tired. Then Seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. This law applied to Israelites. It applied to the children. It applied to their servants. It applied to any strangers or foreigners staying with them. And when God 
puts something into the law, right? The law cannot save. The law is designed to lead us to the cross. The law was designed to say, let me show you how bad you actually are. Let me condemn all men who can never uphold this law and live out to what this says. And he puts this rest piece in there. You go, why would you ever put keep this day special, rest on this seventh day? Because he knew we would struggle with it. He knew that we would basically abuse this gift that we had given. He knew we were going to sin. The Sabbath commandment had several purposes. Its primary purpose, and when we talk about rest, this is really what we're talking about, was to have a dedicated time to worship and to remember and to enjoy all that God has done. Rest was to have a devoted time. I'm going to stop from my normal rhythms of life and I'm going to make much of God. I'm going to worship and praise God. I'm going to remember God. I'm going to enjoy God and everything that He has done. But in addition to worship, it was supposed to be a day of of rest. It was to protect humanity from the harm of working continuously without ever being rejuvenated. But see, the rest wasn't just about taking a nap, but in some sense it was. And that rest as we stopped, as we ceased from our normal rhythms of labor, were to help us not just work better, but actually worship better when we work. It was to help bring those two things together. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus had said, after being accused many times, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was a gift. It was a gift to us to rest. Model after God's rest himself. But unfortunately, and not surprisingly, even the law to rest was abused and perverted by men. They took something that God intended it as a blessing, and they basically perverted it into something that was either idolized or ignored altogether. So we have these two aspects about God. When we come to the Bible, we, we, that's where we want to start. What, is, what does this teach us about God? God's a God who works, and God's a God who rests. And made in this image, we see in Genesis chapter 1, we therefore are made as a people designed to work and designed to rest. Made in his likeness, made in his image, given dominion over his creation, God's intention before the fall. As much as work feels like a chain may be attached to you, maybe it doesn't, maybe you love your work all the time. You're singing zippity-dee-dah, praise Jesus, every time you're shepherding your kids, every time you're working as a plumber or whatever, maybe that's you. I doubt it, but maybe. That's not me. But God intended work to be just that. It was there before the fall, and guess what? It'll be there in the end. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we not only get a picture of what went bad, we also get a picture of what's going to be restored. And so work is part of God's final consummation restoration. Like we have this um, idea that heaven is like Cloud City, and we're going to be running around on cloud cars playing harps and singing to Jesus all the time. Did you know work is involved in the new heavens and the new earth? What are you talking about? I don't mean work tainted with sin. I mean work that is completely fulfilling and God-glorifying, actually joyful. Is that even possible? I know. It's hard to believe, but it is. I've often said that Many of us, I think, are going to find that what we were designed to do, we missed the boat on, right? Because my, I'll be out of a job for sure, right? So I'll get up there, and, and Jesus will be like, yeah, actually, you totally missed it. That wasn't your gift. Well, what is my gift? You are awesome at knitting sweaters. Come on. No, seriously, try. I'm like, this is amazing, right? I'm like making sweaters and stuff. I think some of us totally missed it, right? Like, you should be building tables. Really? I thought I was a chef. No, dude, tables, that's where you're at, right? Oh, oh my gosh, this is amazing. It'll be like that, I'm telling you. 
No one will be like gardening going, I wish I didn't have this job. You know, Peter got that job over there. It's not going to be like that. you got to get this picture right. Full restoration, and that includes work. God made us to work, and he made us to rest. He gave Adam and Eve some very specific commands, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. But then he says in 2.15 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it, to do something, to build, to grow, to cultivate. Work wasn't some kind of addition to deal with sin. It wasn't like, oh, men have sinned, let's give them work. They need some chores. Yeah, keep them busy and keep them out of sin. No, that wasn't it. It was part of God's creation. Both work and rest were part of God's divine design from the beginning, which tells you that work is at its core a good thing, as is rest. But we always have to ask, what has sin done to it? What has sin done to work? What has sin done to our rest? God's intention is for us to be blessed by and through our work, and that only happens when our work is aligned with God's design. So what was God's design? Well, very simply, as we just kind of survey what we see in Genesis 2, first of all, God created men to work. I say men, I mean men and women. He created us to work. And you can see, like, as much as we are so focused on retirement, I don't know what the statistic is, and I'm not trying to freak out people who are retired, but death comes quickly once retirement ensues. Because you have nothing to do. You're so dedicated to getting to like, I just want to be on the beach and have my little drinks with umbrellas in it, right? And that's it. Not realizing that actually is a detriment to you. That work actually brings life. And you see this when you have like, like when uh, society, a lot of people lose their jobs, which we experienced a recession or, or whatever you call it uh, several years ago. And a lot of people lost their jobs. And as much as idolatry was revealed by that oftentimes, what we also saw is that work brings a lot of dignity. It, it gives you some sense, of, some sense of meaning that is good. Now, it can become bad, but it's good. We were created to work. We're also, God instructed men to work for him. He's like, look, I'm going to plant this garden. You're going to be in my garden, and you're going to work for me. It's directed work. It's modeled work. Do what I did. And God also, as we see, gifted and provided men with what they needed to do his work. And what that was supposed to create in us was a sense of not only effective fruitfulness, but also thankfulness. It's amazing how many men and women are so prideful about what they've accomplished in life. Look at the families I've raised. Look at the businesses I've built. Me, me, look what I've done. Mean with the brain and the hands and the opportunity and the breath that God gave you. So we can be sure to be thankful, knowing we are dependent. There's where God wanted us. But he also expected men to rest from their work, to actually recreate for the glory of God, to enjoy what had been made by God, and to remember that he was the one who made it. But as I said, Genesis 3 ultimately teaches us that we turned the gift of work into a God to worship. And I think most of us, and maybe I'm just including myself, but we turn the gift to work in a God to worship, and rest is our first and most consistent sacrifice at that altar. Call it busyness, call it whatever you want, we don't rest well. And we struggle with both work and rest because the Bible says, as we read in Genesis 3, that our work has been cursed by God. It was a result of the fall. Work itself was created good, but work was cursed by God, and now it feels bad. What was intended to be a blessing is now a burden. And many of us would describe what we have to do in life as burdensome. It doesn't mean that we won't do it. It doesn't mean that, that we don't even have desires to do it. It means that it just is hard to do. Guess what? Marriage, hard. Parenting, I think even harder. Pastoring, hard. Plumbing, hard. It's, it's hard. 
What was supposed to be desire and joy became duty and pain. And if you think, I think people really believe, maybe not, because like there's so many bloggers now that write the truth and lies about things. I think really people believe that I'm like all the time like, I'm so happy I'm a pastor. It's rad. And like, it's just not. I'm telling you right now. I have joy in it. I think there's blessing in it. But it's like any other work. It's difficult and burdensome at times. And as much happiness as it brings and joy that it brings, it brings pain. And it, it's not supposed to be like that, but that is the result, I believe, of the fall. And what happens in response to that to save us from that pain? We make a God out of work. And we look to it to give us the very things that it was never designed to give us. And many of us don't believe we've done that. Sometimes later in life, we'll look back, we'll go, yeah, I, sh- I totally made a God out of work. I found everything. I tried to find everything in that hope, meaning, joy. And it's <laughs> but in the midst of it, we're usually pretty blind to it. And one way to determine whether we have made a God of work, and so I just ask you, like, here's how you can determine it. And this was the hardest for me. This revealed to me that I have. Maybe not now, but yesterday, and maybe tomorrow, right? Here's how you can find out. Ask yourself, or have someone else ask you, it may be better, about your rest. What's your rest in? For some, I think a few, but maybe a growing number, that kind of question and the answer to it might reveal that you've actually made a God out of rest. You're lazy. I don't think that's the main problem in our world today. With the busyness of our world and the overburdened devotion to work of our world, I think it revealed the opposite. And if you looked at me, i just be honest, I'm really bad at resting. I'm really bad at stopping. My mind is constantly going. One time when we were working at Damascus Road, Chris was like, you're always full throttle. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's all I got. Full throttle. Let's go. He's like, what is in your head? I said, you really want to know what's in my head? You really want into this darkness? I said, okay. I wrote him a paper. It took me five minutes to write it. It was called 85 things that are on my mind right now. And there were 85 things. And I don't say that because it was good. I say that because it was bad. I am bad at resting. I am bad at stopping. I cannot take two-day vacations and feel rested. I have to take two weeks. It takes me one week to stop. Imagine running full speed, right, downhill. You're like, I've got to slow down. And so it takes a long airstrip for me to stop. By the time week one's done, I'm like, oh, okay, I can actually be normal. And I'm getting better. I'm describing myself probably a year ago. But... Without doubt, I am bad at resting, which for me revealed that I'm bad at working. And when you're bad at resting, I don't want to suggest that um, you're not exhausted or you don't need a nap. I'm a big believer in naps. You should take lots of them. 20-minute power naps, go for it. But it is to say this. Like, if you go, I vacation just fine. Okay, let's talk about resting in your work. Let's talk about the concept or the idea of actually resting in the sense of enjoying or dare I say worshiping in what you do and when you do it. Because I'm not convinced actually work and rest are two separate. I think they actually should go together. But if you're wondering whether or not you're making an idol out of your work, whatever it is that you do, I want to make sure it's all comprehensive of everybody. Whether you are a student, whether you are uh, someone who works out in the world in a vocation, whether you're working in the home, working harder than all those put together, or whether you're retired. Ask yourself some questions like, has work become your primary source of satisfaction? Is what you do your primary source of of meaning and satisfaction. What I mean by that 
is, well, what happens when your job is difficult? Or when it doesn't meet expectations? What happens to your attitude? Do you despair? If it's unfulfilling or unsatisfying, what happens? Do you lose all sense of yourself? What happens if you lose your job? I think it's really telling when someone does lose their job where it was in the pecking order of foundational things. Because what's supposed to be on the bottom is the fact that you're a son or daughter of a king. And on top of that, okay, maybe you're a husband or wife. Maybe you're a mom or a dad. Maybe you're a plumber or whatever it is you, you, you do. Or a coach or all these things, right? Okay. Well, flip that around. At the foundational place and the primary source of your satisfaction is your job. And on top of that is husband, wife, your Christianity. What happens when this gets knocked out? What happens when you lose your job? Everything is shaken. Even my faith. Because that wasn't foundational. What's your primary source of satisfaction? What's your primary source of meaning? Has work become the primarily or primarily about being the best you can and making a name for yourself? And this is a, you can imagine this is a very bad thing, like, oh, I'm not about making my name for myself. Well, ask yourself some other questions, like, what happens if you're not considered good at your work? It was interesting to me, when I was a high school teacher, um, this will sound very prideful, and it is, and it's sinful and wrong, but this was my attitude. So I'm describing it past tense. Not now. I'm terrible. Okay, here we go. As a teacher, I thought I rocked. High school legal teacher, I mean, seriously, I was telling first service, like, it was like dead poet society, right? Mr. Keating, kids on desk, like, yeah, teach, man, just tell us everything. I'm like, that's right, carpe diem, seize the day. It was rad. That was my view. And the interesting thing about teaching is that, you know, I was... I never looked at any other classrooms. All I had was my 150 kids. I didn't care what was happening at Kamiak High School or Lake Stevens. I didn't care. I knew right there it was amazing, right? When you become a pastor, it's a little different, especially in our culture today. There are guys that are preaching on this exact same sermon. You could go podcast a thousand sermons of the same text. There are plenty of other churches you could be at. And you know how much that screws up an already sinful guy? A lot. And you start asking yourself, who's this really about, Sam? Because there are bigger churches, there are better preachers, there are lots of different things that everyone can access, and suddenly you start playing the compare game. And if it's about your name, that's going to be despairing. And I'll be honest with you, it's been despairing before. But it also can be very prideful. It's like, dude, I know I can preach better than that guy. I mean... Our church is you know, 300, but it's not 100 like that guy. You think pastors don't play those games? We sinfully do. Because our work becomes primarily about our name. SamFordMinistry.com Right? Just saying. Better question is to ask, what happens if you never ever get recognized for your work? What if no one ever knows what you did? We have people that serve the church, for example, and clean toilets. I bet you don't know their names, but I bet you know if they do their job. Right? We ask ourselves, what is this really about? Because when you succeed at that job, and it's about you, it's about your name primarily, it's about, I want to be good at something. And when you're good at it, who are we thinking about? Or when you fail, who are you thinking about? When you fail at your job, when you fail as a mom and a dad, when you fail as a, as a plumber or a pastor or whatever it is, when you fail, what happens? Not to say that it's not grieving, but there's like there's sadness and then there's devastation. And if it's devastation, it's possible you've been about someone else's name that's not Jesus. And I'm saying this about myself as well because I've been in those places with 
this. Like, isn't that just sick? The, I, like, this is like explicit Jesus work, right? I'm telling you about Jesus, telling you about Bible, and I can make an idol of it and make it about myself. That's how sin is sinful. It's just ugly. The last question is, has work become meaningful only insofar as it makes a difference in the world, right? You look at your job and you go, well, whatever I'm doing in the world, it either, you know, it just doesn't matter, maybe. Or it only is going to matter if I can measure the impact it has on the world. What if you can't? You know, the woman who gave birth to Jesus was a teenage mom with no reputation for anything. Just look at some of the people, the rock stars that, that Jesus uses, that God uses. Shamgar in Judges. I'm going to preach that sermon again one of these days. Shamgar, this guy gets one verse in the Bible. One verse. And he was a farmer with an ox goat. Killed like 600 Philistines or something. One verse. We always want to talk about like, like leaving a legacy. Right? I'm going to leave a legacy. And we make our work and our capacity to leave a legacy the most important thing. And if we can't measure that legacy, then it must have been a failure. Really? You might have your job and what you do might be too important. Just so. So how does this all wrap up? And so let me ask us or consider what those answers might reveal about your relationship with God, any relationship with others. And I say that because when you, for example, take that last question, work become meaningful insofar it makes a difference in the world, you begin to evaluate other people's significance in the world. Oh, you don't have an important job because you're not really doing anything important like me as a pastor. We play those games. Married people with kids look at single people with no kids. Oh, yeah, well, I am creating the I'm raising the next generation. What are you doing? Single people are out leading nonprofits or even married people leading nonprofits and digging wells for people like, oh, look what I'm doing. You start evaluating each other, playing the compare game. It's just sick. And it's all because it's become all about your work and what you're doing and not actually about what God is doing, even if you fail. But what do you do when you get to a place where I did and I have, and maybe you are, where you go, I, I am really a bad person. Or as Paul says in Romans 7, wretched man am I. Wretched man am I that I take work, something glorious for God, something gift from God and make it something bad. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, I'll tell you that until you see that there is one, namely Jesus, who accomplished all that you're trying to accomplish by working, one who has already accomplished it all for you, you will never rest in your work. You will try to make work give you something that was never designed to give you. So what do we do? Just listen to Jesus. In John 6, he said this, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then he said to them, we must, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So they're like, what are we supposed to do? What are the works of God? What are the best works we can do? Just tell us Jesus and we'll do it. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. They're like, what is it? Lead a Bible study? Become a planner? Raise kids? What is it? He says, believe in him whom he has sent. Believe. Don't do. Believe. We have to rest in Christ's work so that we can rest in ours. And resting in Jesus' finished work means that our beginning point is being satisfied in the identity He gives us through His death and resurrection. So we're not working with something to prove. We have nothing we need to prove. And resting in in Jesus' finished work, right? The fact that he, He said on the cross, it's finished, all done. It means trusting in His grace. What do you mean trusting in His grace? I, I work with absolutely nothing to lose. I can fail. 
Dare I say, Jesus expects us to. That's what grace is about. And working without fear of failure? No, I shouldn't say, that's not even true. Working with agreement that failure is expected and okay? Awesome. When we rest in Jesus' work, we begin to hope in his promises, which means we not only work with nothing to lose, we work with nothing to gain because we already have everything. We have everything he wants us to have. I think that frees us to delight in his work and delight in our work, whatever form it takes. And resting in Jesus like that means we can actually worship through our work, which means we can accept and even delight that he has us exactly where he wants us. And what's interesting about that is when we talk about difficult things, when what we do is hard or we're disillusioned by what we do, we always talk about what God's going to do next. Oh, he's preparing me for blah, 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 blah. What if he's not preparing you for anything and he's just doing something right now with you? He's just changing. He's just loving you. He's just causing you to depend upon him more because that's what you're designed to do. That's worship. Resting in Jesus' work frees us to serve others in our work. In other words, we're devoted because we're working like Jesus for others, even if they never know it, right? Sometimes we'll do work, and we're like, mm-hmm, you know, I did that. Hey, I did that for you. You should appreciate me. If we don't say it, we want it. But what if you could just work freely without needing appreciation? That's good to have. Don't need it. Resting in Jesus, work frees us to trust God with our work. Even if I fail, he does something with it, which is awesome. Because think about it. We have this idea that like, oh, I just didn't do that good. My work. None of your work's any good. You get that? Like, there isn't like, oh, that was really good work, and, and then that was extra good work, and that wasn't like, all of our work falls short. And Jesus does something with it. So there's beauty in going, I can risk, I can fail, I can work hard, and he takes care of it. And we can rest from our work because... It's not dependent upon us. That whatever we're trying to accomplish, whether it's uh, making enough money to make ends meet, or whether it's building up so you can give or whatever, or whether it's building something that's meaningful to someone else, or whether it's raising your children, the fact is we can rest because it really depends on what God is doing. He's always working even when we're not. And even when we can't see it, that's the hard part. Try to take control, believe, if I work a little harder, I'll fix it. Like, let's just let go for a second. And maybe just trust that God is still working, even if you can't see it. The very last thing is something that's going to turn it all upside down. Something that's a little counterintuitive is that we've been talking about we believe that we must rest in Jesus' work. And I believe we do. We rest is a result also, though, of actually working with Jesus. It gets backwards, right? Work comes from resting, but then rest comes from working. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 11, which is a fantastic verse. And this is a verse, God bless you, Aaron Ortiz. He shared this verse with me when I was really struggling with preaching. And by struggling with preaching, I mean this. I care too much what you thought. I'm going to craft something perfect. I'm going to say the definitive statement on this. And Aaron's like, dude, you just need to like pray a little bit more and like read this verse. I'm like, you're right. You know, it was great. And here's what it was. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Check this out. Resting in Jesus' work does not mean ceasing from all work. It means that the motivation and the means for your work has completely changed. He invites us to come to him, right? He's like, come to me, those who are heavy laden, those who are burdened from work, those who are tired, those who honestly will admit you have been working in all the wrong ways for all the wrong reasons. 
In fact, I would argue that only those who would admit that they are weak, that they are overburdened, that they are not strong enough to do what God has called them to do are the only ones Jesus will accept. Those are the only ones that will come. They're like, look, I can't do this. I, I, I am terrible as a husband. I am terrible as, as, as a father. I do not know what I'm doing with preaching. I don't know. It's just, Lord, help me. And he goes, okay, you're ready. As he invites us in, he didn't say, okay, come here, Sam. Come here. Lay down on this bed and take a nap. I'll take care of it. You realize that's not what he does. He calls us to be yoked to him in the field. So as we are yoked to him, right, we come and he's like, dude, just just find some rest. Here, let's get to work. And we begin to surrender our will to His and our plans to His and our expectations to His and our desires to His, He gently leads us in our daily lives and we begin to find rest for our souls as we work with Him. In other words, we were designed to find rest by working with the One who has done all the work for us. And as I said, it is easy to work when failure is expected. My work is God's thing. It's God's thing. And the Bible has a lot to say about things. And if you would take whatever you do, whatever work you would define that as, and place that into what I say here, you would understand, I hope, the perspective we need to have. The Bible says a lot of things about things. The Bible says that God created all things and that all things were good before they were bad. And that Jesus is making all things, even our work, new again. And in the meantime, God is holding all things, even our work, together every moment. And that all things, even our work, wherever we're at, whether it's washing dishes or building widgets, all work is for His purposes. And it's all under the rule of a loving and irresistible King. And the Bible says that all things, including work, should be done as if doing them for Jesus, and that all things should be done to bring glory to God, and we are to reject or not reject all things that come from Jesus, And we're not to grumble about all things, but we are to rejoice and find our contentment even in our work to the glory of God and for our joy. And as we do, we strive for excellence in all things, whether we work at home, in the world, or in our retirement. Some of you peeps, your work's not done. Moses didn't start till he was 80. Get to work. We do all these things so that we might give Jesus a good name and ultimately point to His finished work. Amen? Please know that God gave us the gift of work to glorify Him and the gift of rest to enjoy Him. And let's keep them in their proper places. And as you come to the table here, some of us need to confess and remember the finished work of Jesus that we cannot save ourselves by what we do. We are saved by what Jesus has done. That is the wine that represents His blood shed for us and His body broken for us to say the work is done. Come and admit that you are weak. Come and admit that you are not strong. Come and and receive. We can't forget the resurrection. The crucifixion reminds us that the work is finished and the resurrection reminds us that there is a continuing work that we are to do in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ. So come with a, with a double confession, if you will, to receive and to proclaim the goodness of God who is still working in you to complete the work that is not quite complete. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your patience with us.
Lord, you have given us many, many gifts, and there are very few, if any of them, that we have not made into idols. We have tried to save ourselves through our work. We've tried to create meaning apart from you through our work. We have tried to find satisfaction and significance in something that was never designed to give it to us. Forgive us, Father. And would you remind us of the finished work that you have done in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that for those of us who have made an idol out of work, you will help us to turn from that and find rest with Jesus. And that as we rest with Jesus, we will also begin to work with Jesus. And that that will be restful. That will be joyful. I pray for everyone here, Lord, that can hear my voice, that they will begin to view their jobs and what they do the way you do. And that they will be convinced that you have them there exactly where they are for your glory and for their joy. And that they will be able to rest in what God has called them to do right now and rejoice if God called, if he called them to do something else or stay right where they're at. It's in the name of Jesus that we hope and pray. Amen.